The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. This is the show that brings you a psychological perspective on common and current life issues. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Welcome. Hi, Suzanne Phillips. Thanks for joining me again on Psych Up Live. The focus of today's show is pornography. We're not talking about porn for consenting adults. Today we're talking about the availability, exposure, and impact of internet porn on preteens, teens, and young adults. Porn ranks at the top of most popular searches online, and that's the place where our kids spend hours. It's a place where whether by choice, accident, or a click from a friend, porn can be on their screen. What can a parent do? What should a parent know? What's the best approach to take? We are so fortunate to have as our guest and expert today, Dr. Emily Rothman. Dr. Rothman is a professor of community health sciences at Boston University School of Public Health. She also holds secondary appointments at the Boston University School of Medicine in the Department of Pediatrics and in Emergency Medicine. Dr. Rothman has been a faculty member and researcher for the past 17 years. She has authored more than 100 peer-reviewed publications that span the areas of intimate partner violence, sexual assault, human trafficking, firearm violence, and pornography. She's been awarded research grants from the NIH, the National Institute of Justice, the U.S. Department of Defense, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and many others. Dr. Emily Rothman, it is my privilege to welcome you to Psych Up Live. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. So, Dr. Rothman, you start your career as a violence prevention researcher. How do you end up as an expert on pornography? Well, that's a really good question. I will admit that I did not plan on becoming an expert in uh, pornography or pornography research when I started my career. Um, But actually, when I was in graduate school, I was part of a team that was uh, looking at data and studying dating violence. And we didn't think much of it at the time, but we had included a variable uh, on our survey about pornography, and it turned out that, that pornography was actually strongly related to something that we were studying. And I hadn't thought a whole lot about pornography up until that point in my career, didn't really know a whole lot about it, but suddenly I was quite interested. Um, and so I started finding out as much as I could and and um, realized that there was really a lot, a lot to think about. And then... Um, Sometime after that, I was giving my annual talk to local teenagers who attended an after-school program at the Boston Public Health Commission, and I have to be honest and say that these kids were just looking pretty bored by my usual talk on dating violence. <laughs> um, yeah, they, they, weren't that, they weren't that into it, but when one of my colleagues said, trying to save the day... Uh, my colleague said, hey, aren't you doing some research lately about pornography? What about telling them about that? 
oh my goodness, all of a sudden the room was on fire with questions <laughs> and the, yeah, the kids really reacted to that. And so my colleague and I looked at each other and we sort of thought, hey, uh, if kids want to talk about pornography this much, that they're suddenly willing to pay attention, um, maybe we can leverage that, you know, harness their energy for talking about this topic and, and uh, we can actually slip them some information about consent and respect and dating, healthy dating relationships, healthy sexual relationships, sort of under the guise of having a conversation about pornography. And that's how we started our um, pornography literacy curriculum. Oh, so interesting. And you would go on to find in 2015 that, as you say, 25% of 18 and 24-year-olds use porn as a source of information about having sex. So that connection was hinted at way at the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. So that was one of the main things that, you know, um, I guess people on my team suspected or that we were worried about. And we were able to use nationally representative data to find out that, yeah, um, too many people, um, both adolescents and young adults, are using pornography um, not as it was intended to be used. So it's intended to be used as adult entertainment. um, But you know, we worry about it, especially when teenagers are using it more like an instruction manual for what they're supposed to do. Um, And so that's why, uh, yeah, I think that sort of talking to them about what pornography is and what it isn't is really important. Mm. So let me let me take a step back and say, you know, I mentioned to someone we were going to do the show on uh, helping, you know, kids um, understand porn and porn and teens, etc., And someone said, but I'm sure you've heard a lot, well, there's always been porn. Everybody found a Playboy. Everybody shared a Playboy. Actually, what's the difference with kids sharing Playboy and viewing porn today? Yeah, well, you know, I actually would agree with the person that you were talking to in some important ways. So I think it is absolutely true that it is human nature and developmentally normal and appropriate for people to be interested in sex and curious about sex. And it's true that humans have always enjoyed sexual art and the erotic has been important to people for centuries. So there's nothing particularly new about that. And it's it's also true that whether it was Playboy, you know, in the 1980s or sexually explicit material today, it has always been uh, intended to cause arousal in the viewer. So we've always had, a, you know, that kind of material around. Um, you know, I think some of the important differences are that today, so the medium is different, where it used to be still images, for example, in a magazine. Uh, today's youth are much more likely to see video clips, like free uh, online uh, video clips, so that's different. Um, it, the clips are also a lot shorter than what people might remember. Some people as uh, pornography videos from the 1980s or 90s. You know, the the clips are now a lot shorter, um, and the content has changed somewhat. Um, there is some evidence that it's more likely to depict um, kink or BDSM, which stands for bondage, discipline, dominance, submission, uh, sadism, and masochism. So uh, it, it is true that the content has changed somewhat, 
Um, and it's also true that the way that the porn clips are listed on websites, they tend to come with titles that are pretty different than, um, you know, some of the titles or headlines that you might have seen in the 1980s in Playboy. So there's less emphasis now on making a clever joke or sexual double entendre or a storyline. And now uh, the titles are really pretty explicit and provocative and sometimes, um, you know, meant to be offensive. Mm. What, one of the things um, in the monitor of psychology, one study, and these are your colleagues, I imagine, um, Dr. Paul and Nikki Fritz, they found, Dr. Rothman, out of 4,009 scenes freely accessible on two free websites, 35% and 45% depicted violence and women were the target of that violence in 97% of the time. So the question is, how do kids using porn to find out what to do with sex make sense of that? Yeah, I think I, I, uh, I know that study, and that study um, is, has similar findings to other content analyses type uh, studies that people have done where they look at the content of pornography and try to characterize it. And um, I think there are reasons to worry about what happens for youth when they see content like that, but what we don't know. So I am a social scientist and I like to be careful and not sort of, you know, we don't jump to conclusions before we have evidence in hand. And so what the work that still remains to be done is, um, understanding to what extent is youth behavior influenced by what they see. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that there's uh, enough evidence to suspect that we do have something to worry about and that behavior may well be influenced by some of what youth are seeing. Um, it is possible, you know, just just so that we're not being unreasonable and going overboard with our fear or panic. I mean, it is possible that um, people see uh, sexually explicit images and see sexual material and they decide that isn't for them or it isn't, you know, it doesn't wind up influencing their behavior. So that does happen. Mm -hmm. But the question Mm -hmm. is, what percentage of youth are affected? They're what we call their sexual script, you know, their internal script that they live by about how people should treat each other during sex, what percentage of youth do see free online mainstream pornography and then experience some kind of change to their internal sexual script and then um, have behaviors that stem from that? And that is something to worry about. And I imagine it's hard for people to self-reflect on actually what in an aroused moment they draw upon uh, in terms of what belongs to them in terms of fantasy, what has been internalized from porn viewing. One thing, though, that, that I would say most of us working in the field of mental health, public health, have had concerns about is the issue of consent. And just by reason of the nature of porn very rarely is there much in the scene about consent. And, and you know, so that's one of the pieces, I guess, that it'd be interesting. I don't know how one would operationalize that. I guess you could in terms of um, results from viewing porn. In another show we did on 
consent stories when some of the college kids were asked, well, just exactly how does consent work? They said, well, it wasn't always so verbal. You know, it was also um, a physical kind of consent. So I get what you're saying in terms of how we, you know, operationalize and really find out what the impact is, is really important. But that no one mentions consent would be, to me, a concern. Let me ask you this, though. I think our listeners are probably wondering, do you think porn has made kids younger? Do younger kids younger than they were in the 80s, are they exposed to porn or porn-like images earlier now because of online availability, uh, Dr. Ruffman, or not? That's a great question. And there actually are a number of studies, you know, um, there's probably seven or eight different studies that have been published that have looked at the age of first exposure to pornography among youth, and they've been published in different years. Um, you know, the evidence really converges around the idea that the average age of first exposure to pornography is usually somewhere like 11 or 12 or 13 years old, somewhere right in that range. Um, there isn't evidence that it's been getting younger and younger, in part because we haven't been doing uh you know, large nationally representative studies or even any, right. any even convenient sample studies that, that help us pinpoint the age of average first exposure uh, across decades. So we, we just don't have trends data that would allow us to, to make a statement about that. But, um, I, you know, based on the numbers that I've seen and the period of time in which they were published, my hunch is that age of first exposure to pornography on average tends to be right in line with the age at which young people, um, which is developmentally normal, normal and appropriate, become interested in sex. So, you know, during sort of puberty and early puberty years, uh, 11, 12, something like that. Um, so, so it makes it- sense that they start seeking out sexual material at those ages. So when you think of <clears throat> who's looking at poor magazines back in the 80s, it, you picture it's teenage boys of 11 or 12, right? But what about girls? <clears throat> Do you think porn <clears throat> has changed their viewing? Or are they viewing more or earlier? Yeah, actually, um, that's a great question, and Paul Wright did do a study using something called the General Social Survey, which is our one, uh, one of our nationally representative data sets that does look at people's pornography use and has, you know, over several, several decades. And, um, you know, when he looked at women, he and his team, when he looked at women 18 to 30 years old, he did find that in, um, you know, more recent times, the 18 to 30-year-olds uh, are more likely to have seen pornography at least once in the past year, uh, and that, that that rate does seem to be going up. So it's not women in general, but maybe younger women are today, I think, more likely to have seen porn at least once in the past year. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, yeah, Pierre's correct. <clears throat> so now let's let's talk about let's define for our listeners because I'm sure many are parents who want to know oh my god what should I do <laughs> um, what is mm-hmm. porn literacy and what is its purpose yeah so um, 
porn literacy really grew out. Uh, it's, it's almost the same idea as media literacy, which people may have heard of. Um, you know, media literacy has been taught in schools now, I think, almost for two decades. Um, and, and the idea is that people can become critical thinkers or critical consumers of the media that surrounds us every day. So you can teach people to notice that when an advertisement is trying to sell them a product, that it's it's trying to make you feel a certain way. It's trying to sell you something. Um, we can teach people to notice when they're in a media bubble, when all their sources of, for example, of news information are giving reinforcing the same messages over and over, and they never venture outside that bubble, that that could influence the way that they see the world. So all of those types of thoughts are like media literacy related thoughts. So the idea is we can do the same thing with sexually explicit media or pornography as well, meaning that rather than just, I don't know, allowing people to see pornography and not really have the capacity to have a critical thinking type thought about, well, who made the pornography and why did they make it? And what are, what were they hoping to get out of it by making it? And what are the messages that this pornography is trying to sell me? And how might my view and perspective on the world be altered by taking in this sexually explicit media? Those are all media literacy type questions just applied to sexually explicit media. And we think we can teach people to to do that. You mean teach a teen to say, wow, this is wild, but this is not real. This is not what would really happen. Or um, to wonder why there's no condoms. Or to wonder, as you say, with some... Some critical thinking about, just like they do, as you say, it's so great with the ads, like, really? So, I guess you're saying, since we can't eliminate it, let's let's give our children and our parents some expertise as to how to frame it and or how to take it in, so to speak. You got it exactly, Suzanne. That's exactly it. Um, and, yes, uh, we think that we can... Uh, teach teens and, and other people to really see through it in a way um, and understand that, uh, you know, if porn isn't reality and um, that it can have, uh, unless you're thinking critically about it and actively putting some energy into rejecting it, it can subtly influence your attitudes or your behavior. Um, and so critical thinking about what you're seeing is a great way of countering it. Mm-hmm. We're, Dr. Rothman, we're going to take a quick break, and then when we come back, I want our listeners to know I'm going to ask Dr. Rothman some of the very questions parents ask uh, with this idea of uh, porn literacy and a more, more um, kind of measured perspective of what parents and kids are seeing, and we're going to see what it sounds like. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're here with Dr. Emily Rothman, Professor of Community Health Sciences at the Boston University School of Public Health. She's the author of the important new book coming out through Oxford Press this summer, Pornography and Public Health. Stay with us. Much more to come. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
Tune in every week for Making Action Happen, hosted by Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. The program takes you inside Action 22, a Colorado-based community outreach organization established in 1999. The show focuses on public policies, both politically driven or not, which have ongoing and immediate impact on the Colorado community and the world. It doesn't matter where you are, you can make action happen. Listen Thursdays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, and 1 p.m. Mountain Time on Voice America Variety. Planning for college? Tune in to Getting In, a college coach conversation for tips, techniques, and insider perspectives. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton, a former admissions officer at the University of Pennsylvania, and featuring her fellow admissions and college finance experts from Bright Horizons College Coach. The show shares what colleges are really looking for and how to highlight your hard-won achievements for the best chance of success. New episodes air every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. A Braveheart is anyone with the courage to be of service to others. If you have that courage, then Bravehearts Radio with Brian Reinbold is for you. Even if you aren't yet, you'll want to still tune in to get inspired. Create your own story to share and change your life for the better. Listen to the stories of service and courage shared by amazing guests and your input too. Listen for Brave Hearts Radio Mondays at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember, doing good anywhere does good everywhere. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're here with Dr. Emily Rothman, and we're inviting parents and anybody who loves and is taking care of children to listen in in particular to this portion. We're going to answer some questions that parents might have to deal with. So, Dr. Rothman, what about parents who don't quite know what to do? How does a parent even mention porn, and should they? And what if when they do mention porn, the teen responds, do you and dad even watch porn? What do you know about porn? Right, yeah. Well, no, good questions. And I think parents do uh, wonder what to do. Um, You know, it's going to be a little bit different for every family. Uh, Every family probably feels differently about um, how they talk about sex and what age they, you know, where do babies come from, how they explain that, and at what age. Um, So, you know, some of this is going to have to do with uh, a family's preference around that. Um, But I I think um, by uh, the time that somebody's a teenager, um, it is worth mentioning at some point, you know, a lot of kids uh, see porn, and all of us are sort of, um, sometimes it's something that, you come across on the internet or on your phone, and I just want you to know how I feel about it or my take on pornography. Um, now, that's good, so it's going to depend on the family, but I would say it's quite reasonable to, you know, you don't want to blame or shame 
anybody for um, being a sexual person or having the sexual interest that they have. So if parents are looking for a way to communicate with their teenager in a way that I, that I would call sex positive, so being accepting and affirming, but at the same time, maybe pointing out uh, ways in which you're worried about pornography, um, I think you can just be authentic and direct and say, you know, look, it's, um, I understand it's, it's kind of normal to be curious and interested in, in sexually explicit images. And it's also true that um, these are not an instruction manual. You know, th- these are not, this is not a good source of sex ed. Um, and the main thing is, it's really just not very realistic. They're making porn in order to make money. And in fact, people who make pornography are often in competition with each other in order to get more fans or more followers or more money. And so they do more and more extreme things. If you're trying to figure out what's going to make your partner happy, uh, like how to be good at sex, you do not want to take your notes from pornography because it's like trying to learn to drive a car by watching a car you know, chase scene in a movie. They're doing it in order to be extreme, in order to have, like, high impact on the viewer, not because they're trying to show you what people really like in real life or what you're supposed to do in real life. So, um, you know, you sort of, like, say your, say your piece. And, uh, you know, for, for me, I would say that you don't want to um, uh, then, like, blame them or make them feel guilty for if they have seen porn or if they've sought it out. Well, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more because once you've made them feel bad, shame, etc., you're not getting the opportunity for another conversation. So you've closed the door, so to speak. So, you know, the way you said it really keeps it open. I like the idea if you want to know what your partner wants, this is not the reference and maybe your partner's a reference, you know, in in terms of expanding beyond that. But what a great answer. Now, one thing... You know, people sometimes think, okay, I've got I've got these filters on the computer for the kids. I think we're okay, but internet filters don't always work. And what do we say to a parent who tells you that their seven-year-old accidentally came upon porn and is kind of a, confused and a little bit upset about this? Right. It is true that even you know you can't fully trust internet filters uh, to do all of all of that, you know, work for you. So things can slip through um, and they will. And so it is good to be prepared for that moment when hopefully you find out if somebody who's, I would call a very young child, you know, six, seven, eight years old, Mm -hmm. um, has seen pornography uh, accidentally, most likely, um, or someone has showed it to them or something like that. So you're going to want to figure out exactly what happened and what the context was. And I would say you want to find out how the child is feeling about it first. So, um, you know, to figure out if they're feeling like that was what I saw was scary um, and or if they're feeling that they're in trouble. Sometimes kids have a way of picking up that porn is something that is off limits and that they weren't supposed to see, and then they mm-hmm. wind up internalizing those feelings like, oh, I did something wrong. So right. they often need reassurance that they're not in trouble, and you're really glad that they decided to tell you about it or that you know, you're really glad that 
were able to have this conversation about it. So because you want them coming back to you and telling you in the future if they see pornography again and if they have questions about what they're seeing. So just as you said, Suzanne, you want that door to be open. Um, so I think starting the conversation by saying, I'm really glad we're able to talk about this. You're definitely not in trouble. Um, I, I know what you saw could be scary uh, or maybe not. Maybe it just looked silly or weird, but let's talk about what it was. Um, you saw naked people doing something called sex, which is for adults. And it's off limits to kids because just the same way that um, alcohol is something off limits to kids or um, coffee, you know, or driving a car, there are things that are just for adults and that kids' brains are not ready for yet. And this is one of those things. Um, Mm -hmm. So you can put it in simple terms. Now, I don't know if there's any data on preteens or young teens becoming somewhat, you know, I won't say addicted, but somewhat riveted on porn, having seen it or having seen it with friends. So, and sometimes, I guess, correct me on this one, but what is hard to understand, frightening, and um, even confusing can have a draw to it. it. It almost draws you back to figure it out, to get... There's a, there's a fine line between excitement and fear. Um, what do we say to a parent who has come across their 10-year-old many times seeking out porn and watching it in private? Yeah, well, that's a good question. Um, I, again, I, I would start by trying to figure out why they're seeking it out and what they're seeking out exactly. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so is it... Um, uh, is this a is this a child who's starting to um, uh, you know have questions about their own sexual orientation and they're seeking out same sex material and then that's what they have found? Uh, mm-hmm. In which case, you you might want to provide very different resources, but the conversation might be different than um, a child who has another reason that they're seeking out the sexually explicit material. So you want to figure out well what is it that they're looking for. And why are they doing this? I mean, if it's, I think what I think of as sort of -of run-of-the-mill, plain teen, you know, sort of tween uh, emerging curiosity about sex, um, you can acknowledge, you can say, look, sex is fun and a pleasurable thing for adults. Um, There are laws that mean that sex uh, with other people is off limits for people your age. Um, children your age aren't supposed to see pornography, and part of the reason for that is that pornography is not like real life sex at all. Um, and children who see uh, pornography can get the wrong idea about what sex is like. Um, it can also happen that uh, children who see it get some of those images sort of stuck in their mind, and it can be hard to stop thinking about. It, Mm -hmm. which I would want you to tell me if that is happening for you. There are ways of of getting help to figure that out. Um, But, you know, uh, pornography is something that that is off limits to you for your health and safety for right now. Um, And I need to know if you're going to be able to stay away from it or if you need help from me doing that. And if you want or need sex and sexuality information, I have some other ideas about where you can get that. And then for people wondering, oh, well, what are these other 
resources. I, there's a couple of websites that I recommend. One is called Scarletine, S C A R L A T E E N, Scarletine. I think that's a great resource. Mm-hmm. There's another one um, called sexetc.org. It's um, S E X E T C dot org both of these websites have information for teens about pornography uh, that I think can be really helpful and is on point terrific thank you now we've both read about and um, we even did a show on um, sometimes you get an 18 year old boy or 17 year old boy who develops such a serious porn watching habit that he's unable or fears he's unable to even have sex with a human being. Uh, that is, the, his arousal is has become somewhat tied to the images that he sees. What's your take on that? Yeah, well, um, I would say that there are definitely um, people who experience that. Um, it is, I don't think there's, evidence to support the idea that people usually get stuck like that and it's a lifelong condition. Um, So if people are watching pornography and then they're finding that limits their ability to interact with a real life partner in the way that they want, if you stop watching pornography, usually then, um, you know, just spend a period of time without watching pornography. Uh, I think most people experience that they can reconnect with a partner. Um, But, you know, there are some people who become compulsive about pornography use much the same way that there are people who become compulsive about playing uh, video games or gambling Mm -hmm. or shopping. I mean, you you name Mm -hmm. it, it's out there in the world. There are people who become compulsive about it. Um, And so I say that and say, you know, there are certainly people who experience that and, and want help for that. It is also true that sometimes too too much attention or too much worry um, uh, it goes into this idea that you know a young person who again totally developmentally normal to seek out pornography um, and be curious about it that they're going to see it one time or two times and and wham suddenly they're addicted and and stuck like that for the rest of their life and it, you know it just there isn't evidence to support that that happens to the vast majority of pornography users. And sometimes it can also happen that people, you know, for various reasons, I think, feel so guilty or get messages from society that porn is, is so shameful or that their interest in, ha- in seeing it is so shameful that they get kind of a complex or, a, a, you know, experience anxiety because of that out of their sense of shame and guilt. Um, and it has as much to do with that as something magical about the sexually explicit material in the first place. But either way, so, there are for sure, yeah, people who struggle. So you're really saying in a, in a few of these examples, and, and maybe this one, let's say we have a 15-year-old who is 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 really tuning into porn from what you can tell quite a bit. The alarm of the parent is not the answer to it. So... If we have an older teen who you notice really seems to be on the sites a lot, do you have any advice for the parent? What should the parent do? Start a conversation? Well, what do you think? Well, yeah, and to be absolutely clear, 
nobody who's under the age of 18 is supposed to be seeing pornography. Um, so, you know, um, we know, just as we were talking about, well, you know, even since the 80s, since the beginning of time, there were probably people younger than 18 years old who would steal a Playboy magazine or see pornography. So I know that, you know, that does happen. But just to be clear about this, people under the age of 18 aren't supposed to be seeing pornography. So, um, you know, there's there's that right there. Um, but then um, I guess the main point is... Um, it is rarely helpful when parents overreact uh, or, you know, when you have a teenager, I think keeping it as calm and low key and understated as possible builds a bridge so that you can continue to have conversations about sex and sexuality or dating and relationships. Whereas um, I, you know, I understand it, it is easy to freak out as a parent, but the bigger, louder, and scarier that you are as a parent, the less likely that that adolescent is going to be to turn to you for help. And they may legitimately need help around some of these issues, uh, if not now, in the future. So, so keeping it calm is, is, I think, a good thing for relationship building. I, I also think, as you said before, sometimes children really are worried about or confused about their gender, confused about choices, and they're really desperately looking. And the more accepted they feel by parents, the better they always do. So for whatever reason they're looking, if they realize they now don't have to do it in the dark alone, and they and that it's okay to be confused and to have sought out something to see if there's other people like them, that's a real, that's a gift. The relationship with the parents has everything to do with mental health and children accepting issues of sex and gender. Absolutely. Uh, I couldn't agree more. And in fact, there's, I mean, we have hard evidence that when parents are supportive and accepting of youth who are gender minority or sexual orientation minority youth, that can be a strong predictor of their overall health and their mental health and their well-being. So it is really important that parents are supportive. Mm. Now, a related issue, and we're going to have to take a break, but I want to put it out there. A related issue is sexting. Now, it, it's, it doesn't necessarily have to come from porn, but I just wonder in terms of movies and porn and even, you know, series, kids need to know a little bit more about sexting. So we're going to take a break, and on the other side of the break, we're going to talk about um, sexting, but we're also going to talk about programs that can help kids become much more expert in sex so they know what they're seeing and how to make sense of it. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're here with Dr. Emily Rothman, who's invaluable in terms of her experience and what she's been sharing today. She's the author of the new book coming out this summer through Oxford Press, Pornography and Public Health. Stay with us. Much more to come. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Tune in every Friday to get your weekend kickoff early. Join the legendary G. Keith Alexander for What's Hot Harlem America. The flagship show of the new Harlem America Digital Network has something for everyone. From the latest in entertainment to empowerment, health and wellness, and more, we'll bring you a variety of fresh viewpoints, voices, and ideas. What's Hot Harlem America with G. Keith Alexander can be heard every Friday at 1 p.m. in New York and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Today, our 40s sit firmly in midlife. We are starting to feel our place and have many productive years ahead. But now is the best time to plan for our future life. Listen for 45 Forward with host Ron Roel. From retirement to health and technology to caring for our parents, no topic is off the table. We don't have a roadmap to our actual future, but we can start to plan more effectively. Tune into 45 Forward, Mondays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. What are the labels that identify us? Who are we, and how do we figure out our place in the world? Do we own our narrative? If you were to create your biography today, what would it say about you? Listen for Dropping In with host Diane Dewey, the author of the award-winning memoir, Fixing the Fates. Diane and her guests will give their version of finding themselves. Find out about your authenticity by dropping in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Dr. Emily Rothman, and we were just about to start talking about sexting. Dr. Rothman, what can you tell us about sexting? What is it, and how can parents talk to their youngsters about it? Yeah, so um, sexting is... Uh, you know, we used to call it sexting, and now I think teenagers have moved on to calling it like nude, nude selfies or nudes, but whatever you call it, um, this is when people usually take photos of themselves um, in various states of undress and then um, send it to someone. So they might, uh, you know, they might send it to a partner. Um, it is, you know, in adult relationships considered now a normal part of like dating or being in touch using phones. Um, so people do it. The problem is um, teenagers, people under the age of 18 really shouldn't be doing it, uh, probably for a whole bunch of reasons. But if for no other reason, then you can get in serious legal trouble for sharing naked images of yourself if you are a minor. So whether you're possessing uh, or distributing sexual images, naked images of somebody under the age of 18, um, you are now committing a crime. Um, And so, and you shouldn't, you can get in legal trouble for possessing naked images of another minor. Um, So that's really problematic. Um, It's also important for teenagers to know that if somebody is pressuring them for naked images, you know, that they, you know, they've met somebody and they've started dating and the person sort of says, do you send nudes? Um, 
it can be not a great sign about who they are and what kind of partner, dating partner, they're going to be if they mm-hmm. pressure and they won't take no for an answer. So right. that can be sort of another aspect to this. Um, well, and like, we've also <clears throat> found that teenagers will assume that because they're using Snapchat or another app that deletes the, you know, it seems to delete the photo from a phone right away, they think, right. well, I'm safe because I just did this sexting via Snapchat. I'm, you know, it'll be okay. They don't realize always that people can um, do a screenshot or, or, or use a second phone to take a photo, a photo of the first phone. And right. basically, once you've sent that sexual image, it is possible that it will be retained. And so, so that's something you want to think about. Right. So not only is it likely to be retained, but there the illusion that because I said yes to you and we exchange them that that's okay, you're underscoring no. If you're 14, that's against the law. If you're 16, that's against the law. Right. So you're correct that even if somebody who's 14 or 15 says, um, I willingly took this photo of myself and sent it to you. I consent to that, so we're good here, right? Nope, it's not you. It is not okay for anybody who's under the age of eighteen. Um, nobody should be possessing or sending images of someone who's under the age of eighteen and and who's naked. Okay, now one of the things that you're going to be talking about is your push to really develop online curriculum for porn literacy for parents and for students through public health. And I guess I want our listeners to know, uh, I want to preface this by saying, I think our teachers have been frontline workers these past year and a half, remarkably so. Um, But one of the realities is that school districts really are not offering sex education. Maybe talk to us a little bit about the statistics on that. Yeah, well, so this is uh, information that's been compiled by the Guttmacher Institute. Um, so at this point, 29 states in the United States mandate that some kind of sex education be taught through schools. But interestingly, only 17 mandate that the information presented to youth be medically accurate. Uh, and only 10 mandate that that uh, consent and, and negotiating consent for sex be part of that sex education. So there's a lot of places where there's really a lot left out of uh, sex education, and, and that's in states where there is any kind of sex education that, that is mandated. There, you know, it's only 29 states that, that mm, do mandate that wild. Yeah, at all. Yeah. yeah, so we're really, we're just leaving our kids without... Uh, without information. So in some ways, no wonder they're turning to pornography uh, for information about mm-hmm. about sex and how to have sex. Mm-hmm. Well, tell us a little bit about the online curriculum that you've, I think you may have offered and that, you've, that, that you're currently working on. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So as I mentioned at the beginning of our talk, um, I got together with colleagues from the Boston Public Health Commission, and when we noticed how curious and interested teenagers were to talk about pornography, we thought, okay, well, if they want to talk about it, we'll talk about it. Importantly, 
We never show pornography to teenagers as part of our class. That is not what we mean by porn literacy. We mean becoming critical thinkers about sexually explicit media. Um, but because, you know, it, um, most people um, have seen pornography at least once, we found that most kids know what it is that we're talking about. And so we have a nine session curriculum where we go over topics like, um, you know, how pornography can promote norms about sex that are dangerous. Um, we talk about what healthy flirting is like. We talk about mm-hmm. the idea that pornography isn't necessarily reality uh, and that some of it can be depicting sexual exploitation, actually. Uh, We talk about revenge porn. It's so-called revenge porn. I mean, it's the non-consensual dissemination of sexually explicit images, that it isn't okay. Um, We we do also talk about the history of sexually explicit images in society and how historically people made the choice to call certain material obscenity and then how that can be misused to persecute minority groups. So um, we, you know, we give some attention to that as well. Uh, we do talk about whether pornography use can be compulsive and, and what uh, kids can do about that if they're feeling like their use is compulsive. So we cover a lot of ground in these nine sessions. And um, we have been overwhelmed by how interested sex educators uh, and um, health teachers And therapists, we've had so many people contact us and ask us for training in this curriculum. So we did start Mm. giving, yeah, during this past year, we moved to, we were giving in-person trainings and now we've been doing them on Zoom um, where people can get trained in using this curriculum locally. Okay, so I'm going to ask the quick question. If people listening wanted to be trained how would they access this material or the the training information? The best way, so we have an Eventbrite link where you can sign up for our training. Uh, but one thing you can do, I, I'm trying to think the easy way to get the Eventbrite. I can send it to you, Suzanne, if you have a way of posting it. But people can also follow me on Twitter. I am at the at sign and then E-M-R-O-T-H-M-A-N at M. Rothman, that's following me on Twitter, and I just today posted a link to our next training. Great. So that would be a quick and easy way to find that. Okay, so the, my, my next question is, is there a parental um, curriculum in the making that, that might be valuable? Might, maybe parents you know, would be as excited as kids. Yeah. It's a great question, and I have had uh, I've had online sort of conversation sessions with parents um, before. I would at this point we don't we don't have any plans to create a, a parent training. So many parents are just so busy and so overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. It's like hard mm-hmm. for them to make the time to sign up for one more thing. Um, I would say if this type of information has been useful. For listeners who are parents and they or, or anyone and they want more, um, I, I put a lot into the book. So I would say the book that's coming out in July, Good. Pornography and Public Health, would be a great read and a place to start. And um, yeah, so I'll just leave it at that. Well, tell us how we would get the book. It's coming out um, this summer, is it, Emily? Yeah, it's coming out till, uh, July 22nd is when they are going to start mailing it out. It is available for pre-order right now on the Oxford University Press uh, website. And um, 
I think it'll also be available via Amazon sometime mm-hmm. this summer as well. But for now, the pre-orders are all from Oxford University Press. So, in other words, a parent purchasing pornography and public health would have would be able to find some valuable information, much as you've given today, which has been wonderful, in terms of some of those topics we've been talking about. Yeah, exactly. It's sort of the facts, and it's, you know, where there's studies that support some of the more like scary and worrisome things, where there's mixed findings, uh, where the evidence doesn't support certain contentions. And actually, these can be great conversation starters for adolescents. So mm. teenagers are more likely to engage with you if you're almost like standing on the same side as that as them and like critiquing maybe a fact or or like thinking together more deeply about some, oh I read something interesting and you know yes. we can talk about it. That's so great. it might be a way to start some conversations with kids as well. It becomes the third. You're both looking at it together. Like listen to this. Oh, this is great. That's a great idea. So right, exactly. So if you were to send all of our listeners out there a take-home message today, what would it be? I would say, um, you know, keep things in perspective and stay balanced. So, yes, there are things to worry about when it comes to porn, absolutely. And it doesn't help to go overboard and panic or overworry or draw, you know, a completely bright line either. So, you know, yes, we worry and uh, we keep things in perspective. That would be the bottom line. Thanks so much. So for all of the parents, I speak for parents and children. I want to thank you, Dr. Rothman, for your continual pursuit, the research, 100 papers, unbelievable, for your research in many, many areas. And today, particularly in terms of porn, we need your information. We need your book so much. Thank you again for joining me on Psych Up Live. Thank you. Okay. I want to thank my listeners. Remember, you can hear this and any prior show as a podcast. By 6 p.m. Eastern tonight, this will be a podcast on my host site, my website, and every almost every platform that you turn to for your podcast. iTunes, Stitcher, Apple, Amazon Audible, Google, Spotify, Amazon Alexa, etc. Remember to drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Mostly until next week, please continue to take steps to be safe. Thanks and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, be well and be listening.